Let's go to our scripture reading for uh, today. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 14. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we can ingest your word, uh, your unchanging truth uh, for all time. And we pray, Lord, that through it we will hear the good news uh, that you proclaim to us every day, especially through this time, Lord, we pray uh, you would you would plant it deep in our hearts and and cause it uh, cause our faith to rise and and cause our hearts to, to be changed uh, into your likeness. We ask all this uh, in your son's name. Amen. We're at the end of our sermon series in pursuit of a healthy church. And I wanted to close off this series um, with this particular topic. I've been wanting to address this topic for, for a while now. Um, and that's because I think this is, this is actually one of the ways you can discern whether the church that you're going to is a healthy one. And that is by examining whether it's a church that will prepare you properly for your death. Uh, more and more I'm becoming certain of this, and maybe it's because I'm approaching midlife. Um, a good church is simply a church where as you go every Sunday and grow old, you become familiar with the hymns and the prayers and the sermons that you would want repeated when you're on your deathbed. And, and, and therefore usher you into your life after you die. And, and this would be true for your loved ones as well. Uh, the, the, the things that you would want to be sung and spoken when your loved ones are dying. And like any other area of spirituality, uh, this aspect of our faith is something we have to cultivate and mature into. It takes time. And we're certainly not going to address uh, exhaustively right, this topic today. But this little passage, a couple of verses from the Apostle Paul, is a good place to start. So let's turn to this passage. Let me unpack this for us in this way um, by observing three things. One, the importance of acknowledging death. Two, the importance of grieving death. And thirdly, um, the importance of hoping in the face of death. All right? Acknowledging death, grieving death, hoping uh, in the face of death. All right? So point number one, acknowledging death. Take a look at verse 13 again. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. First thing you have to notice from this verse, the Bible wants us to be informed about death. 
about those who have fallen asleep. Uh, meaning, the Bible does not want us to be living in denial of it. And regardless of what you thought you would hear as you got up this morning and got yourself ready to go to church, and you might thought, okay, today I'm going to be informed about some really positive things, things that would make you feel a little better. Um, the Bible, regardless of how we feel, wants us to be informed of this, informed about dying. And it's, I think it's especially important for us because we are particularly a young bunch, relatively speaking. We're a young bunch. And uh, it's easier for us, therefore, to be guilty of being, I'll say the word, ignorant of death. Okay. Uh, we're capable of this kind of forgetfulness and complacency. Uh, why is that? Well, th- th- there are a couple reasons why. One might be more historical, the other might be more cultural. Historically speaking, uh, you and I live in a time that's very much advanced right, in our medical sciences right, and, and hygiene and stuff like that, all of which create this unhelpful illusion that death is somewhat sort of within our control and, and relatively avoidable. Of course, it's a good thing to access all those things, right? Medical sciences, vaccines. But with these resources come this illusion that death is something we can kind of push off. And this wasn't always the case. This is a very relatively modern phenomenon. Um, for much of history, people have lived with a very realistic confrontation with death and had a much better sort of death expectancy, if you will. Um, during colonial times, for example, I learned that um, the life expectancy only averaged around 40 years. Do you know that? I'm, I'm, tur- I'm almost turning 40. <laughs> One in every three children died before their adulthood due to sickness and disease. I have three kids. It, it was common, it was quite common back then for parents to bury their own children and vice versa. So there's no way during that time, no way you could live forgetful of your mortality, of death, of dying. And because of that, I think back then people were living much more like the psalmist who says in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may carry a heart of wisdom. I think they would have lived with a greater measure of this wisdom as a result of that. Why does the Bible call it wisdom? Why is it wisdom to number our days? Because it's wisdom to be ready for what's imminent imminent and inevitable. It's wisdom to prepare for what what will come, your death, and, and also prepare for what will come after that, what comes after death. I think the other reason for our ignorance of death is more cultural. Given that we live in a culture that's uh, driven towards material wealth, individualism, and performance, our thoughts are just too occupied with the, the achievements and legacies and possessions and relationships in the here and now. And therefore, increasingly severed from this spiritual instinct. We're, we're numbing our spiritual instinct that readies us for the life that we will live after death. There's a distortion of perspectives, if you will, in the current way of life that most of us are living, where this droplet of existence called uh, earthly life 
looms larger in our minds than the ocean of eternity that's ahead of us. Our minds, our way of life, are 99.9% of the time occupied with that droplet and, and not the ocean of eternity. I think the parable that best summarizes this is the parable of the rich fool. And that title itself is already kind of paradoxic. Uh, rich fool. Uh, he appears in Luke chapter 12. He's a rich man with an overabundance of possessions. And he says to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And what does God say to him? Fool. Fool. This night, your soul is to be taken from you, reclaimed by its maker, and the, all, the, all the things you've treasured up and stored up, whose will they be? And will any of that help you in the afterlife? No. That's, that's why it's called the parable of the rich fool. He was rich in possessions, rich in achievements, but also rich in distractions and rich in his foolishness. He was utterly unprepared uh, for his life after death. And, and culturally speaking, right, we are, in a sense, just as, just as rich, or just as um, high achieving, and and just as distracted, and um, perhaps just as foolish. In a sense, it's our culture to which our culture this parable speaks and says, "Fool." How does any of the things that you're busying yourself with prepare you for your afterlife? So a, a, a big part of Christian wisdom is living with the end of life in sight, with the reality of death fully acknowledged. The scripture says that leads to wiser living, more faithful living. When you know that all your possessions that you currently have and will ever have, you will inevitably lose. You take none of it with you. Perhaps you'll be less greedy and covetous, envious. When you know that all your earthly relationships come to an end, perhaps you'll be more gracious and, and compassionate and understanding. When you know that all that you take with you into the afterlife is your relationship with God. Perhaps you will walk more closely and intimately with him in the here and now. I heard a, a sermon by an elder, a ruling elder, uh, named Howard Donahoe. He serves at a PCA church somewhere else. He preached a sermon at the General Assembly where all the PCA elders, teaching elders and ruling elders gathered and the title of his sermon was Heaven. And he said something just really profound that I've never thought of before. He said, so much of what we're called to do right now in this life, we will never be able to do again when we're in heaven. Things like feeding the poor, pursuing justice, forgiving our enemies, carrying others' burdens, Raising children, adopting children, telling others about Jesus, resisting the devil, suffering for Jesus, worshiping Jesus 
as a fallen creature carrying your cross. There won't be another opportunity for any of these things. The chance for you to offer these things up to God is now and and only now. So learn to number your days, the finite number of days with which you can serve the Lord this way and please Him and love Him this way. So to number our days leads to wiser living, more uh, faithful living, acknowledging the reality of our finitude, of our uh, mortality. Awakens us uh, from um, foolish living. That's point number one. Acknowledge the reality of death. And, and here's point number two. The importance of grieving also uh, in, the, in the face of death. Look again at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay. It, it's so important that you hear what the Bible is saying and what it's not saying. The Bible here does not tell us to not grieve in the face of death. No. The Bible tells you to not grieve as others do, as those who have no hope, but you must grieve. There's a certain way in which you must know how to grieve in the face of death. Why? Because death was not a part of God's original creation design. It's the violation of it. Remember in John chapter 11 where Jesus stands before the tomb of his friend Lazarus? And and what does it say? Even though Jesus, he was on his way, he knew he was on his way to resurrect him. He intended on bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Even so, even so, it says, Jesus wept. He grieved. He cried tears of loss and devastation. Why? If he was going to raise him up again, why? Why such grief uh, in the face of death? And there's only one way to understand this. It was because as the creator of the world, the giver of life, he was seeing death for what it is, a distortion and corruption of the creation that he loves. This is the creator of humanity weeping at the sight of humanity's ultimate dehumanization, which is death. So Jesus' response to the, the sisters of, of Lazarus is not, oh, he's in a better place. Here, now, now, stop crying. Watch what I'm going to do. <laughs> he, he weeps. He grieves. He mourns. Because that is the right, proper human response to something that's as corrupt and as evil and unnatural as death. You might ask, well, if death is so horrific, why does God permit it in the first place? The scripture tells us why. Death came into the world, into our lives, as a result of our free decision to sin against God, against our neighbors. And and death is the wages of sin. It's what sin ultimately does. Sin dehumanizes Whenever 
we hate, we, we, we are vengeful, we covet, we lust, we condemn, we gossip, we are dehumanizing others and ourselves. And the ultimate wages of that dehumanization is death. The final form of that sin is death. When creatures made in the image of God, creatures made for lasting meaning and purpose and morality and love, when sin enters that and corrupts all of that, it leaves us with the, the wages of sin, death. It's the, it's the ultimate contradiction of creatures meant for continuity. <laughs> creatures, creatures who long for a lasting life and lasting love. Death is the ultimate contradiction of what we are, to be in a world without end, to be with our maker, to be living, and to be fully known and fully loved in his presence. And the loss of that, the threat against that, should cause you to grieve. Now, what does grieving look like? What Paul, interestingly, does is he starts off by telling us what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like, he says, grieving as those who have no hope. What does that mean? It means we are not to grieve like those for whom death ends all, and there's no hope for anything beyond that. We're not to grieve like those for whom this life is all there is. Uh, Paul is philosophizing a little bit here because this is the position that secularism holds. Secularism is the, the worldview or philosophy that there's, there's no God, all that exists purely physical matter, chemicals, atoms, rocks, bouncing around accidentally, randomly. Therefore, it's not a problem at all. If the if this universe that started off as nothingness, as rocks and atoms bouncing around, bumping into each other aimlessly, accidentally, and then you accidentally, aimlessly die, and you return to that nothingness, you're simply returning to your original state. You're returning to the space dust that you are. Another way secular evolutionary biologists have put this is death is simply a part of the cycle of life that turns us into fertilizers that feed other life forms, which then turn into fertilizers that feed other life forms. It's the circle of life. Remember what Mufasa tells Simba. When we die, we become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass. So we are all connected. Right. And the amazing soundtrack. Um, or if you're a sci-fi fan, it's what Master Yoda said, right? Death, I can't do, I can't do Yoda's voice. Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. Mourn them, do not. Miss them, do not. Right? If you substitute the force with the universe, you essentially have secularism. You, you return to the universe from which you came, the nothingness from which you came. What's to mourn about that? It's perfectly natural. There's absolutely nothing unnatural about you dying. So mourn them, do not, and miss them, do not. By the way, you know, parents, right? These are the moments where you pause the movie and have a conversation, right? 
That's secularism, kids. You're not going to be fertilizers. There's hope. But see, the secular model is that death is a perfectly natural part of the circle of life, and therefore, right, you have no right to grieve death. The way to grieve death is to not do it. Mourn them, do not, miss them, do not. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a right, famous Oxford evolutionary biologist and this new atheist writer, he went as far as to say, we should be grateful that we get to die because not everything gets the opportunity to die. It, it's by this random accidental chance you came into existence, now you get a chance to die. How lucky is that? And he says this, quote, we privileged few who won the lottery of birth against all odds. How dare we whine? at our inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred. How dare you whine about having to die is secularism's philosophy of death. It's, it's mourn them, do not, miss them, do not, and how dare you. <laughs> uh, Stephen Jay Gould was another evolutionary biologist who, who taught at Harvard. He was kind of an influencer of Dawkins, so sort of the Yoda to the Obi-Wan kind of guy. He added this, quote, we are here in this universe because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There is no other way. He's essentially agreeing with Dawkins and and saying, since we're all here by accidents, let's, one, not look for any higher meaning in the universe because there is none. There is no higher meaning in the universe, no, no purpose to your existence. Two, Let's construct our own individual meaning, create our own personal ethics of what's right and wrong until you return to non-existence. Play that game. Play the game as though your life does have meaning when it doesn't, like it has value when all value will be lost. It reminds me of the, the comedy TV show. I don't know if they still run this anymore. Whose line is it anyway? The, the catch phrase is, where everything is made up and the points don't matter. That's secularism in a nutshell. Everything's made up and the points don't matter. The value systems that you conjure up don't have value. And the bigger point I'm making here is, is that according to that secular worldview, death, therefore, right, there's no rational reason why you would mourn death whatsoever. It's not to be grieved because everything you deem valuable in life is only valuable according to a made-up system, a made-up system of value. Why would you cry or whine about losing values when those values are made up? It's like, why, why would you take someone to court for the points you lost in playing whose line is it anyways? That doesn't hold up. There's no objectivity to it. Now, you might say, what about all the friends I have who are secular, who are atheists, who I know, who are living for something that seems truly meaningful and good, like helping people and fighting for justice and equality? 
And you have to understand, the point here is not that they can't live for these things. The point here is that according to their worldview, if they're secular, equality and justice, these aren't real. These are not real. They're made up. They're playing the game. Thomas Nagel is another secular philosopher. He argued this point in his book, uh, What Does It All Mean? He argues that it really doesn't matter if you come up with a meaningful value system that feels truly meaningful to you, like helping the planet, promoting diversity, equality, justice, loving someone sacrificially, because ultimately it's all inconsequential. Why? Death ends all. All the people you help, they die and become fertilizer just as much as those you, you don't help. Those you love and know intimately will be just as forgotten as those you never knew, never loved. Those who live justly fight for equity. The, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of this world and the Adolf Hitlers of this world, they all face the same fate, death and fertilization. A, a billion years later, all will be lost and forgotten in the grand scheme of things. So Thomas Nagel says, sure, you can pretend to be living for something meaningful, but you shouldn't pretend as though that meaning is true. There's no such thing. Not when death ends everything and everyone. There is no lasting meaning or value in life. So should you grieve death? Secularism says no. Chin up. Mourn them do not and miss them do not. And stop whining is the secular philosophy of death. And here's their, therefore, secular philosophy of life. Uh, this life is the only one you got. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Living as though this life is your only chance at happiness until you die. That's secularism. That's atheism. Living as though this life is it. It's my one chance at my highest good, my highest potential, my highest gain is secular. And Paul is saying, Christians, any Christian out there, don't grieve like that. As if you're losing your one shot at happiness. Because Christians, you're not secular. Do not grieve, therefore, as secularists do. Do not grieve as those who have no hope beyond the here and now. Those who live now as if this is all they got. But grieve like Jesus. With all the resurrection power in him, and yet able, even, even with that knowledge, even with that power, to see death for what it is and grieve. Grieve as though your death, your, your decomposition, unnatural. Unnatural to you. As if it violates you and offends you at your core. There's nothing natural about it. As if deep down you know you are more meaningful, more consequential than the grass that withers and the flowers that fade. As if deep down you know you are more valuable, infinitely more valuable than the, the piles of fertilizer at Home Depot. Instead, when you face death, you are to rage against it like it's your enemy, like Dylan Thomas said in that, in that poem that we've all read in high school. Rage, rage against the dying of the light and do not go gently into that good night. That resembles more of Jesus' spirit. 
Jesus who wept at his friend's funeral, who mourned, who grieved. This grieving that finds death to be unnatural, this, this grieving that shows Jesus rejects secularism. He stands there and weeps and affirms right, our lives were meant for more. And the points, they do matter. Life is filled with values that are true and consequential. He affirms all of that as he stands in front of his friend's tomb, even the one he's going to raise from the dead, and weeps. He teaches us to do the same. So Christians, we are to learn how to grieve and grieve well. Grieve in the face of death. Grieve when that enemy strikes us and our friends, our loved ones. Weep with those who weep and do so with with the patience that doesn't lead you to turn their grief too quickly into joy. Give yourself and your friends the permission to grieve and grieve hard and grieve long. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's one of the most dignifying things we can do in the face of death, to look upon death and say, you don't belong. You are unnatural. You are my existential enemy. You are a contradiction of all that I am meant to be. In grieving, you affirm all these things. And you rage against your existential enemy. But this is also where the third point has to come in, and that's to point out how Paul doesn't just simply tell us to grieve, simply rage or simply grieve against the enemy, does he? He says, grieve with hope. Not to grieve as those without hope, and not to merely rage, just in bitterness and despair and disillusionment. He says, grieve with hope. That's the last point, hoping in the face of death. How do we do that? Uh, Verse 14 says, for since we believe that Jesus died, since we believe that, Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died. First of all, Jesus died and rose again. Uh, Why is that significant? That's significant for us because, as Paul says elsewhere, this is how Jesus proves that he was able to do something no human being has ever done. And that is removing from mankind the sting of death. And what is the sting of death? Sin. You know, another reason why death is so repulsive to us is because in death, we suffer, we suffer a kind of judgment. We suffer something shameful, something that contradicts our every effort at living a good life, our every effort to be righteous, to be justified, Death shows us we ultimately fall short. Death proves, in a sense, we're all imposters. Deep down, we know in death we're about to be exposed. Deep down, we know there's accountability after death. Because justice, it's it's meaningful. So, Turns out we're not only in need of saving from death, but from what comes after death as well. 
It's not just the death that we should fear, but the sting of death. Sin and judgment upon sin that we should fear. But Jesus, by becoming one of us, living and dying and rising again, he shows us that in him we have our way out of our sin and our death. It's by being united with him in his death and therefore in his resurrection. And this is the gospel. That Christ, he died according to the scriptures. And Christ, he rose again according to the scriptures. Why? Why would he do that for anyone? He could have, he could have let justice be done and the universe would have been meaningful enough. It's a universe where justice stands and sin is punished. If God had not saved a single soul, we would be living in a perfectly meaningful universe. But as verse 14 says, God wanted more. He wanted to bring us, bring you and me, to be with him. To be with him. To be together. And the only way he could be with us this way is if the sting of death is removed from us through Christ, through him. Every other religion that believes in an afterlife basically teaches that the way to be saved from that sting of death, the sting of judgment, is by living a good life now, by measuring up now, putting your, getting your act together now. Obeying God now, keeping the law now. It's a, it's a religion of self-help, self-performance, self-salvation. And that is not good news. That's not the gospel because that means you are called to be your own advocate, your own champion on Judgment Day, fending for yourself. And this says you can only get to God if, if, if you, if you have loved God sufficiently in this life. But the gospel is different. The gospel of Jesus Christ is fundamentally opposite of that. It tells us we have an advocate and champion in Christ who will stand up before the judge for us and who tells us through me, you can be made right with God. You can be reconciled to God. It's not about whether you've loved him enough. It's whether he has loved you enough through me. And the only question is, will you receive this love? Will you, will you put your trust in his salvation and not your self-salvation? Will you look at the cross and see how, how he's shown you all the wages of sin, all the sin of death he has suffered so that you will be forgiven, you will be free from that? How he had been utterly dehumanized on the cross to make you fully human again through him. At the cross, Jesus died the ultimate death in exchange to give you and me his life, his eternal life. And that's what we have in Christ. Well, if Christ died for me and, and I have eternal life in him, why do I still have to die? Heidelberg Catechism is helpful here. It tells us when a Christian dies, the Christian only experiences an end to their life of sin and disobedience. That's got to end at some point. Death brings that to an end. 
and a life of trial and suffering, tribulation. All of that ends in the Christian's death as they enter now into eternity with God where he wipes away every tear, where sin and death are no more, pain and suffering are gone, where we are brought to be with him. We'll be face to face with him, totally forgiven, totally alive, and totally loved. In secularism, ultimately, death, death wins. Death is stronger than everything. Death swallows up everything. Death is even stronger than love. It's in Christianity we hear the good news. Love is actually stronger than death. Love swallows up death. Love puts death to death. That's the evidence we have uh, in the life and resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Our hope is in the love of Christ for us that is stronger than our own death, stronger than our own sins. And that is the good news. At the end of the day, um, the church is here to remind you of this hope, this hope that you have in Christ, and for you to, to encourage you to hold on to it as you pass on from this life to the next. To remind you, even as you sin, you have a Savior whose power to forgive you is stronger and change you is stronger. Even as you die, you have a Savior whose power to resurrect you is, is stronger. And therefore you will not, when you die, fall into the millions of miles of nothingness, but you'll fall into the loving arms of God. And you'll be more loved, more perfected, more whole than you could ever be in this life. That's what you're here to be reminded of as you worship and as we fellowship with one another and learn how to grieve well and hope well uh, together. I think one of the privileges I have as, as a pastor is just getting to <clears throat> take part in some of the really significant moments in your life. Um, I've done a lot of your weddings. I've I've baptized quite a few of your babies. We're going to have more to come. Um, but Lord willing, Lord willing, I, I like to have the honor of doing your funeral and have conversations with you uh, prior to that of how you would like that to go. Um, what hymns will be sung? Uh, which passage of scripture do you want read? What kind of hope do you want to leave behind for your loved ones who are grieving your absence? As we, you know, we sit down and we plan weddings and we talk about how, how can we design the ceremony in a way that would point people to Jesus and glorify him. I want to encourage you, take some time today Think about your funeral and how that will go and how that will point to Jesus and glorify him. What will be the testimony that people hear of you at your funeral? Uh, number your days. Uh, we will meet him very soon. And uh, church, if anything, is, is a place where it readies you for that.
And that is not bleak. Um, not when we think about who's on the other end waiting to greet us. Let's pray. Our Father, um, you are uh, the only, only hope um, for your people, for your children. Lord, we ask uh, that you would bring your, your comfort, uh, especially to those who have had their brush with death, who are, who are suffering from that, who are grieving uh, in the face of death, that you would help them, help them feel that you are grieving with them, that you see them in their grief. And you're saying it's, it's okay to grieve, it is good to grieve. And enable us, empower the church to to grieve with those who are grieving, to weep with those who weep. And we ask God that you would also grant us your vision of your life, one where you are perfectly present, where you wipe away all our tears, all our sins, all the death. Fill us with that hope. Lift our hearts up to where your presence is, where your love is. And Lord, teach us, teach your church to number our days, to help us uh, carry in us the, the heart of wisdom in, in, the, in our living, uh, in our working, in our relating, in our parenting. Uh, give us even the wisdom to, to, to see um, and plan for our departure from this life. And what comfort and hope we would uh, want to leave behind for those who, who grieve us. Uh, may we look ahead to our final eternal union with you. May we not live for the little drop of existence in the here and now, but for the, the ocean of eternity ahead of us. Help us to, to look ahead to our life in the new creation, in your world, in your kingdom without end. And we ask this. In the name of the one who died and rose again, Jesus Christ, amen.